four-year-old just now, and sorry, Steve, I don't think he was hearing all the announcements, but he did say, what did he say when he heard Easter egg hunt? <laughs> and then just now they were walking out, and he said, I'm going to the Easter egg hunt. So he might be a little disappointed when he gets over there. But I do uh, bring you greetings from San Benito, Texas, and Resaca City Church. Um, this fall, our church in South Texas will be starting our own sermon series in the book of 1 Samuel. So I'm looking forward to uh, just this sermon, and I've enjoyed just looking at the book this week and uh, just kind of starting to meditate on it. I'm not sure about the state of the church in Garland or in DFW. But the reason why I'm church planting in San Benito is that I am very concerned about the state of the church in South Texas and in northern Mexico. We're we're connected with pastors on both sides of the border. And where I live, nearly every single person I talk to is religious. And nearly every single person I talk to is either nominally Catholic or Jehovah's Witness or Prosperity Gospel Christian. And that's basically religion where I live. Our, our city is full of either successful prosperity gospel churches or small wannabe prosperity gospel churches. And on my good days, this makes me mad enough to pray and to continue church planting. You know, we're supposed to have slow anger. We're supposed to have the right anger, anger that moves us. But on my bad days, this makes me depressed and frustrated. And when I'm surrounded by these types of unfaithful, legalistic, unchristlike churches, I can start to wonder, where is the glory of God in all of this? I know DFW and Garland is a different context than where I live, but I'm sure you can look around sometimes if you're surrounded by a certain type of Christian or people who claim to follow Christ, but their lives in no way match up to the values of Christ. And you might wonder, has the glory left? And this is the exact question that is going to be raised in our text this morning. Uh, Keith was very generous to give me three chapters to preach this morning because one is not enough. And we'll be covering 1 Samuel, Samuel starting in chapter 4 verse 1 going all the way to 1 Samuel chapter 7 verse 4. So instead of a four chapter scripture reading, I invite you to have your Bibles open and I will be summarizing the story as we go. And you're going to see why, why this story is so important for Israel's history and why it's so important for us today. Leading up to chapter four, it's been an amazing journey. If you've been here the past couple weeks, a man named Elkanah had two wives. He had one wife who was bearing children, but Hannah was barren and she didn't have any children. And then by the grace of God, she was able to give birth to Samuel. And after Samuel was born, Hannah lent him to the Lord, and Samuel began to apprentice under Eli in the temple. But unfortunately, y'all read this last week, Eli and his household are an unfaithful priesthood. They're not marked by justice or holiness. They're not marked by offering pure sacrifices to God, And so you learned last week that God is judging Eli's household, and he's handing over the priesthood to Samuel, right? There's this transition happening in the story, and this leads us to our chapters today in 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 6. What we're going to see here is the fruition of the transition from Eli's household to Samuel, and how they will be finally judged we're going to see how God is going to discipline his people for their unfaithfulness. How God is going to judge 
the nations, and he's going to remind Israel and the surrounding nations of his glory through judgment. And finally, how God is going to restore his repentant people as they're ready to be led by Samuel, the faithful priest. And these chapters are important because I hope that maybe you're already seeing the movement that's going to happen here. An unfaithful people led by unfaithful priests and at the end of our section today, it's going to be a repentant people led by a faithful priest. And so that's where the story takes us today. So we're going to start in chapter 4. If you have your Bible, if you have your phone, feel free to have it with you. I'm going to be summarizing the story. And here we are, 1 Samuel chapter 4. So 1 Samuel chapter 4, the people of Israel, uh, they go up in battle against the Philistines. And they suffer this loss. It says 4,000 soldiers are killed. So it's, it's, a, it's a pretty big loss. And they come back to camp and they're like, Man, what do we do? And they remember, hey, don't we have that Ark of the Covenant thing? Maybe if we grab that and bring that with us, then that's going to give us some power and some help so we can conquer the Philistines this time. But it's important for us to realize this wasn't an act of faithfulness to God. This was more of like, let's go grab that lucky rabbit's foot, and then let's go take them on again. This is pretty similar to wearing your lucky jersey in hopes of seeing the Cowboys make it past the first round next year. Too soon? Too soon. Okay, sorry. So they fight against the Philistines a second time, and they and they encounter a horrible defeat. This is one of the worst days in Israel's history. Probably the second worst day besides the Babylonian exile in their history. 30,000 men are killed. Eli's sons are killed. The Ark of the Covenant is captured. And when Eli hears the news, he falls out of his chair backward, breaks his neck, and he dies too. And chapter 4 ends with Eli's daughter-in-law in labor... And she's dying in labor, and she names her son Ichabod, meaning the glory of the Lord has departed from Israel. You think people are getting a little wild with baby names today? <laughs> Try Ichabod. This would be similar to the United States getting conquered by a different country. Your family is killed. Your church is burned down, and you name your son Death of Liberty. This is how somber of a moment this is in Israel's history. Hope has been lost. Things are really bad for Israel. They have been an unfaithful people, led by unfaithful priests. And so God has done exactly what he promised to do in his old covenant with his people. He has taken away his hand of blessing and has given them curse. You'll know this is exactly what God promised in the Old Covenant, Deuteronomy 28. If you are faithful to the covenant, I will bless you. If you are unfaithful to the covenant, I will curse you. So this is just God being true to his word as Israel completely falls apart in one day. And it's obvious in chapter 4 that God's hand of blessing has been removed from his people. But I want you to consider the question raised by Eli's daughter-in-law. Has the glory of the Lord truly departed? I want you to consider the definition of the glory of God. In particular, I want you to think about the difference between the holiness of God and the glory of God and how they're related. If you have a, you, you can just think it in your head or if you have a little phone, you can jot down a note. 
How would you define the holiness of God? How would you define the glory of God, and how are they related? Well, I want to share a a verse with you from Isaiah chapter 6 that shed some light on this. I don't know if you remember this scene, Isaiah, he's, getting, he's in the throne room, this is a beautiful scene, the angels are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is filled with his glory. Isn't that interesting? Wouldn't we expect them to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is filled with his holiness, Right? But no, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is filled with his glory. So let me give you some definitions that help us better understand Isaiah 6 and help us understand our passage today. And you can use these as you're reading throughout the scriptures. Here's the two definitions. The holiness of God is his absolute perfection and his infinite worth. That means that he is completely set apart from us in every single way. That's the holiness of God. The glory of God is His holiness on display. This is His holiness made public to us as He reveals it to us. So let's go back to the question at the end of 1 Samuel 4. Has the glory of God fully departed from Israel? Is God done displaying His holiness to Israel? No. The ark is gone. The favor is gone. But for Israel and for the surrounding nations, God's glory will be seen in these chapters as discipline for his people and judgment against his enemies. He will make them see his absolute perfection and his infinite worth. That's chapter 4. This leads us to chapter 5 now. So the Philistines, they win the big battle. They capture the Ark of the Covenant and they're pumped up. In their minds, they just captured Israel's idols because they were a, a people who worshipped many idols. So they're like, let's take that thing and let's put that in Dagon's temple. You know, you've heard the Baals and Ashtaroth and Dagon. Those were their three main gods. So they put this in Dagon's temple. The next morning, they stop by the Dagon's temple. And what do they find? Dagon is face down before the ark, right? So they go on in. They pick up the statue. They put him back on his shelf. And they go on with their day. We don't have any more details by that. But the next morning, what happens? Dagon's on the ground again. But his hands have been chopped off. His head has been chopped off. And here is the picture. Dagon is lying before the Ark of the Covenant, completely humiliated and decapitated. This is a picture of God's holiness on display Yes, his people are undergoing some much-needed purification and discipline, but God is as alive and powerful as ever. We read that Dagon's hands were cut off, and the author writes that the hand of God was very heavy there in Ashdod, and many people in the city were afflicted with tumors. Many people died. So the people in Ashdod, that's Philistine city of Ashdod, they panic and they send the Ark of the Covenant on down the road to another city called Gath. Same thing happens in Gath. Tumors, panic, death. We read that the hand of God was heavy in that place. So the people of Gath send the Ark 
of the covenant down to another city. They send it to Ekron. And as the ark arrives at the gates of Ekron, immediately there's a panic. Immediately. Tumors. Panic. More devastation. It says that the hand of God was very heavy in that place. So the people of Ekron are like, what do we do? And they come up with this awesome plan of how can we get rid of the ark and try to offer some type of guilt offering so that we can get rid of God. We can get rid of this thing. So they create these golden statues of mice, these golden statues of tumors. These must have been some interesting looking statues. And they put them with the ark with some dairy cows and they send them on down the road to Beth Shemesh. And of course, in no way is this a worshipful offering. In no way is this a faithful offering. The goal is how can we get relief from God? How can we send him on down the road? And this is still the most common response to God in our culture. When things are difficult, when sickness comes, when your marriage is on the rocks, when you have when you might lose your job, when your children are struggling. What can I do to appease God so that he can help my situation? And once my situation's better, how can I send him on down the road so I can keep living however I want? I want to keep living for my kingdom, not for God's kingdom. So the ark arrives in Beth Shemesh. And if anyone should have known how to rightly handle the ark of God, it was the people it was these Israelites. The people of Beth Shemesh were descended from Levi. They were descended from the priesthood. So they should have been very familiar with the laws concerning the Ark of the Covenants. But unfortunately, in Beth Shemesh, we learn that God's judgment against mistreatment of the Ark is not just for the surrounding nations. It's for anyone who disregards his word and treats the Ark as common. So the people in Beth Shemesh, they're super excited to have the Ark back. They probably also viewed it as some kind of magical and powerful object, as we've already seen, because they immediately start mistreating the Ark of God. First, they sacrifice the female cows that brought the Ark, which was against God's laws for sacrifices. And then immediately afterwards, they take the Ark, they grab it, they put it up on a stone. Why is this a big deal? God's law is clear that no one is to look upon the Ark of God and they say, well, instead of no one looking upon the Ark of God, let's put it on this large stone so that everyone can look at the Ark of the Covenant. They weren't worried about worshiping God in the way that God prescribes worship. They were saying, I want to worship God in the way that I want to worship God. But God wasn't interested in their worship that disregards his word. So God's glory comes on full display again as 70 men are killed. For looking upon the Ark of the Covenants. Now, this is important. At this point in the story, these Israelites in Beth Shemesh had an opportunity to repent. Right? There's a difference between the people in Beth Shemesh and the people of the Philistines in those, in those cities. But instead of repenting and making changes, they send the Ark of the Covenant on down the road again this time to the city of Kiriath-Jerim. And this is helpful for us to notice because it's not just the unreligious culture around us that wants to send God on down the road. 
there are many moralistic churches that have no real interest in the upside down of the king, upside down message of the kingdom of God, where we win through sacrifice, and the greatest are those who serve. And that doesn't sound American. I don't want to worship God in that way. I want to send him on down the road and find a church that will let me worship God the way I want to worship God. So let's bring this down to the individual level. In what ways is God asking you to repent and return to him with a heart of humble worship marked by love for God and love for your neighbor? Don't send him on down the road if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you this morning. But this is where the story starts to take a positive turn. The ark arrives in Kiriath-Jerim. And here we are now in chapter 7. Samuel, he's now on the scene. He leads the people to repent of their idols. And God restores blessing on his repentant people through a consecrated priest named Eleazar who is now in charge of the ark. Things are starting to look up. God's glory has been on full display as he disciplined his people. Full display as he defeated his unfaithful enemies. And now his glory is on full display as he restores his repentant people through a consecrated priest. Now doesn't that sound like the gospel? Think about the purpose of the ark. The ark of the covenant was placed in the holy of holies in the tabernacle. And through a blood sacrifice... By a consecrated priest, the Ark of the Covenant became the place of meeting between God and man. Okay, it's a place of meeting, and it's a place of blood sacrifice. And throughout the whole Old Covenant, God's people would continue to struggle to be faithful to Him. They would turn toward idolatry. They would offer impure sacrifices. This would go on and on and on. And through the priests and the sacrificial system. Their, their sinfulness could be ceremonially atoned for briefly for them to be able to draw near to God in worship. But the blood of bulls and goats sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant would never be enough to fully atone for their sins. It was always meant to be a picture for them that they need a better righteous priest to come and make one pure sacrifice that would finally bring them near to God. And this is exactly what happens at the cross. The cross is the new place of meeting for God and his people. Jesus is the consecrated priest who fulfills all righteousness in his life so that he offered himself up as the one pure sacrifice. So at the cross, it becomes the new and better place of meeting with a better sacrifice so we can now fully and eternally draw near to God and meet with Him. That's what Jesus has done for us. Under the old covenant, the Israelites received blessing for faithfulness and curse for unfaithfulness. But Jesus Christ became a curse for us on the cross. So that every single curse reserved for the unfaithful people of God would be absorbed by Him on the cross and there would be nothing left but blessing for the people of God. You remember what Paul wrote to the Ephesians? He says that we have received every single spiritual blessing in Christ. He became a curse for unfaithful people so that through faith in Him we are eternally blessed and can always draw near to Him and worship this is the gospel. 
So in 1 Samuel chapter 4 through 7, we see the mighty hand of God at work throughout the whole story. The mighty hand of God. The mighty hand of God came in judgment against the city of the Philistines, and that's the same mighty hand of God that is able to sustain us and preserve our faith as people who have given our total allegiance to King Jesus. John 10 says, No one can snatch us out of his mighty hand. Romans 8.34 says that Jesus is interceding right now for us, where? At the right hand of God. But at the same time, we don't want to forget the story that we just covered here in 1 Samuel 4. In God's faithfulness, he severely disciplined his people with his mighty hand in order to draw them back in repentance, worship. So we don't take God's faithfulness for granted. But as his redeemed people, we move toward him each and every day with fresh faith and fresh repentance. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So putting all this together, yes, you should rest in your freedom and security that you have in the mighty hand of God, but you should also recognize the ways that maybe you have drifted from the gospel, and in a fresh way this morning, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that he can exalt you. We don't take God's grace for granted, and this gets us to our application today. If I could move you in one way this morning, it would be this, that every single one of us needs to recognize the ways that we have drifted from the gospel, and we need to return to submit our lives fully to the king and the values of his kingdom. So I want you to consider how have you maybe drifted from the gospel? How have you drifted from total submission to King Jesus? Okay, this isn't how are you following the Christian rules of whatever Christian group you're a part of. It's how have you maybe drifted from total submission to the King? How have you drifted from the values of the kingdom? And values of the kingdom are the first or last and the greatest of those who serve were marked by kindness and meekness and humility. How have you drifted away from the Holy Spirit? In what ways are you seeing the fruit of the Spirit evident in your life? Y'all help me remember, sometimes I miss one. What are the fruit of the Spirit? How do we know that the fruit of the Spirit is alive and at work in our lives? Is that we start to see more and more that we are marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All right, making sure we don't miss any. Um, are we as the church known as being kind to people? You know, kind to our families, kind to one another in the church, kind to the, the world around us? Uh, when, pe- when people look at you, so again, your family, the, your church family, your neighbors, your coworkers, etc., would they say, man, that man or woman really loves me. And that person loves everyone around them. And that person is gentle in how they talk with other people. Is that that how people would describe you? If not, maybe you're drifting away from the values of the kingdom of God. 
In my own life, on a regular basis, I recognize ways that I am seeking to rest in this world by trusting in God's gift rather than trusting in God himself. This comes up all the time for me. And just as the Philistines put their hope and trust in a worthless idol, Dagon, I can put my hope and trust in idols like control, like me trying to control things, idols like success, idols like I need everyone's approval around me. I can start to trust in those things, but they're just as worthless as trying as the Philistines trusting in Dagon. Instead of finding my ultimate rest in Christ, many times I find that I'm trying to find my ultimate rest in leisure outside of Christ. I'm not saying that rest is bad or, or every form of leisure is bad, but there's a lot of times where I'm not trying to find my, my true ultimate rest in Christ. I'm trying to find it in these other things over here. I have to repent of immoral worldliness, but I also have to repent of moral self-righteousness. And in a church on Sunday, this needs to be brought up almost every single week, that not only do we need to repent of those bad worldly things over there, but we need to repent of our moral self-righteousness. Many times I care more about being right than being loving. I focus more on being heard rather than listening well. I can be judgmental rather than compassionate. I share truth to others based on my terms rather than sharing truth with them in a way that they can most understand and accept. Because I'm putting myself above them. I care more about proving theological points than loving people. Man, I have to repent of this stuff all the time. But praise God, because of the cross, that there's freedom in repentance. There's no fear in repentance, because he has already dealt with our problem of sin. So there's two ways that I can drift. I can drift away from the gospel toward immoral self-discovery, doing what feels right to me, right? That's how we would say that's how the world's living. And I can also drift away from the gospel toward moral self-righteousness, putting my confidence in my right beliefs, in my right conduct, and people who don't live like me, people who don't believe like me, they're the bad guys, and I can look down on them. I don't know about y'all, but in what ways maybe have you drifted away from the purity of the gospel? Like the Israelites. In what ways have you moved away from the simple law of loving God and loving others? And in what ways have you tried to follow God on your own terms rather than on his terms? God will glorify his name. He will glorify he glorifies his name through the judgment of his enemies. He glorifies his name through the discipline of his unfaithful people. And he will also glorify his name through the restoration of his repentant people. May that be us. God is absolutely worthy. And he's infinitely valuable. And he will display this holiness in all the earth. So let's go back to my hope for all of us this morning. That every single one of us would recognize the ways that we're beginning to drift away from the gospel. And that we would return to submit our lives fully to the king and to the values of his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, there's many ways where we are living in a way that feels right to us and is accepted by our brand of Christianity. 
and our group of friends or the people online that we can get to agree with us. And we can get really comfortable there, far from the kingdom of God. I pray that you would, in a fresh way, remind us of the beauty of the gospel, of our King, that we submit our lives to, who laid down his life for his enemies as the ultimate act of love. May we be known in the community as people who lay down our lives for the good of others, that we lay down being right, that we lay down our rights as Americans, that we lay down our comforts, whatever it might be, that we would do anything in our power to love and serve those around us just as you have done for us. God, I pray for anyone here this morning like me that can get discouraged uh, by seeing many professing believers living in a way that is very, that is anti-Christ. Or by knowing many churches around who are, in the name of Jesus, are promoting something very different than the kingdom of God. I pray that you would encourage us and remind us that your the glory has not left. You are still displaying your holiness in this world, and you will, in a greater way, display your holiness more and more in this world through the advance of the gospel and the church. We thank you for your grace. We pray that by the mighty hand of God, you would restore us if we're repentant. And I pray that by the mighty hand of God, anyone here that is that is not repentance, but should be, that you would bring discipline and your love and grace to bring them back, to humble themselves under your mighty hand so that at the proper time they may be exalted. We thank you for how you're at work here this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name.